I am excited to be with you. You can pray for me because I got the crud, all right? That's the James Earl Jones thing you're hearing up here. The deep, I got the junk, and so pray for me that my voice makes it to the end of the sermon, all right? Thank you. Let's get in the Word together. I'm excited to be in the Word, that's for sure. We're going back to the Gospel of Luke, all right? Open to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to reenter now back into our series in the Gospel of Luke. It's been an amazing series. And what we're going to discover here this morning is that Luke is now going to change the scenery. We're entering into sort of a new segment of Luke's Gospel, and it's the segment where he shows us Jesus as an adult doing ministry in the region of Galilee, which was a region north of Jerusalem. And so what's going to happen over the next 13 weeks leading up to Easter is that we're going to be seeing Christ in action week after week after week, all the way to Easter Sunday. We'll see Jesus teaching. We're going to see the profound wisdom of Christ. We'll see Jesus healing people. We're going to see amazing feats of power. We're going to see Jesus loving people in the name of God, and, and, and demonstrating grace. And it's going to be wonderful, and it's going to be amazing. And as we fixate our attention on Christ, that's going to lead us all the way up to Easter Sunday, 13 Sundays from today. And here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that I've been having a dream about our church. And I want to share that dream with you this morning before we crack into Luke, because it's a dream that's about you. It's a dream about you, and it's a dream about what I think God wants to do in our church by the time we get to Easter Sunday, 13 Sundays from today. I want you to dream this dream with me. Imagine it's Easter Sunday, and you're sitting right here in our church on Easter Sunday, and you're worshiping, but here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you look over, and the person who's sitting next to you is that person that you have been praying for. It's that person that your heart has been aching for. That person that you've wanted to share your Christian faith with. That person that you've wanted to invite so that they could hear about the love of Christ for them. And I want you to imagine, it, to your great joy, that that person is sitting next to you on Easter Sunday and they are filled with joy and they're glad to be there. And I want you to believe that God has the power to do that very thing. Maybe it's a person that you have given up on, because that happens sometimes. Maybe it's a person in your life, you, you might know who this person is, that you've written off. You said there's no way that they could ever come to Christ. They're, they're too far gone. I wrote off a kid once when I was a young man in ministry. I gave up on a kid, and I vowed that I would never do it again as I saw what God did in his life to transform him for the sake of the gospel. I said, I will never do that again. I'm going to tell you that story at the end of the sermon. <laughs> but this morning, what I want to say to you is, will you dream this dream with me? Okay, River West, think about this. Luke had a conviction, 
And it's a conviction that I fear many Christians do not share. And the conviction was this. He believed that Jesus is so perfect and so powerful and so compelling that his teaching was so wise, that the way he treated people was so astounding. Luke believed, if I can just expose people to the story of Christ, that story will transform them. If I can just get people to to look into who Jesus was, how he treated people, what he said, what he did, that Jesus himself, through the power of the gospel story, will begin to transform human lives. And what I'm calling our church to do is to share that conviction with the gospel writer, Luke. Why wait until Easter Sunday to invite your friend when next Sunday we'll be lifting up the glory of Christ in the gospel of Luke? Amen? Are you with me? Are you asleep? I'm the one who's sick, all right? Let's get the energy up. Are you with me? I'm, I'm having a dream, and I'm asking you to dream the dream with me. And it's not my dream. It's Luke's dream. It's God's dream. It's God's dream. Will you open your Bible to Luke chapter 4? This morning, we're going to read a story about a sermon that Jesus preached that was so provocative and so intense that when he stopped preaching, the audience who had gathered rose up in rage and they tried to kill him. And what's amazing about the story we're going to read is that this happened to Jesus in his own hometown. Many of you know the story. The story we're going to read is Jesus comes back to Nazareth where he's from and he walks into the synagogue, which was like the church, and he reads a text and he preaches a sermon. And at the beginning, things are going really well. People are fired up. They love it. But within about five to ten minutes, whatever Jesus says in that moment is so provocative that the people stand up in rage and they lead him out of the town to try to murder him. What in the world did Jesus say in that moment? Let's find out. We look at it with me. Luke chapter 4. I'm starting in verse 14. Here's what he says. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, by this point in the gospel, the reader is not surprised to hear this language about the Holy Spirit. You see it right there? Luke says he's, he was powered, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're used to this because we've seen this theme over and over. Luke's brought it up, right? We know Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so his entire his ex- existence was through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. We know that when Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water and the Spirit fell in the form of a dove to empower Christ. And then we read and we studied that it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to go toe-to-toe with the devil. And it was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. And now we're not surprised at all to see that when Jesus returns into Galilee, he returns in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Luke says, I want you to realize this is God's representative. He's spirit-empowered, and everything that you're about to hear and everything that you're about to see as you study through Luke's gospel, all of it is being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what Luke wants us to realize is people could tell 
his reputation spread. Did you see that? A report went out about him, and he was being glorified. People were blown away. They were mesmerized so that by the time Jesus comes to his own hometown of Nazareth, his reputation has already got out in front of him. And my guess is his friends and neighbors from home were waiting on bated breath for, for their hometown boy to come back to Nazareth and hear what he had to say and hear what God was doing in his life. What happens? Look at it. Verse 16. So Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written. Now let me just stop there in a minute. We'll read it. But what I... What I want you to, I want you to be drawn into this story, okay? This is like the classic story of the small town boy who goes off and he makes a name for himself and he builds a reputation and then he comes home and, and the whole town is waiting for their hero to return. And we know that Jesus' parents were devout, so it wouldn't surprise us at all that he comes immediately into the synagogue. This was the synagogue where Jesus was raised. He knew everyone there. As a, young, as a young man, this is where Jesus heard the scriptures read. This is where he came to worship. Imagine Jesus walks into the room and he would have recognized every face in the room. And they recognized him. They were like, this is Joseph's kid, right? And then he stands up to share a message. What would that have been like? Stand up there and look across the crowd and recognize all these faces that he knew from his childhood. I've been asked a couple times to go back to my home church in Salem, Oregon and, and preach. And it's really weird. Because I, I get up there, I've got, I got there a couple times and I'm looking out at the crowd and, and I'm like, I know these, I knew these people when I was five years old and they knew me, okay? They're like, that's the McMurray kid. That's the kid that went into the kitchen after church and gobbled up the, le the leftover communion bread. I know that kid. And now he's up here preaching. It's weird, right? This is that scene. This is that moment. Jesus stands and they're like, I know this is Joseph's boy. What's he going to talk about? And the way that Luke tells the story, Luke, he's trying intentionally to draw you in. Did you notice every little move that Christ makes, Luke, it's like Luke slows down so that you are there. Luke's like, Jesus stood up. You see that? Verse 17, he stood up. He walked over to the attendant. The attendant hands him a scroll. He unrolls the scroll. He tries to find the place that he wants to read. How long did it take? We don't know. It could have taken a minute, two minutes, silent. People are waiting, bated breath. What's he going to read? What's he going to talk about? He's unrolling the scroll, and he finds the place that he wants to read. And here's what he says. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Look at that word anointed. Just put your finger on that in your Bible. That word anointed, it's the Greek word krios. It's the word from which we get our, our, our title Christ. 
that word, it means someone who has been given special favor by God. God has anointed them. He's poured out his spirit. This person is special. This person is God's representative. This was a prophecy from ancient Israel that there would be someone who would come who would be God's anointed, God's Christ. So when you hear the the name Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's not his, it's not like it was Joseph and Mary Christ and their son Jesus Christ. It's not that. This is the this is the title of this person, Jesus. Jesus is saying all those prophecies about a Messiah, a Christ who would come, I'm that person. Hometown Jesus. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. What? To do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what did he do? He rolled up the scroll. It's like Luke just slows down. He rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. Now in the synagogue, when you sat down, that was actually the moment when the sermon began. So we stand when we preach, but in, in the synagogue they sat. It was, it, was a, it was a place of honor. So Jesus stood, he unrolled the scroll, he found the place, he read the text, he rolled up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and then in dramatic fashion, he sat down, and everyone was watching. See it? They were fixated. What will he say next? And here's what he said. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Jesus Translation, Jesus is saying all those prophecies, all those promises of God, that God would come, that God would act, that God would move, that he would send a Messiah, that he would send a Christ. Here's what I want you to understand. Today, in my presence, as I read to you those prophecies, all of those promises are coming true because I am here. If he had a microphone to drop, That would have been, that's the mic drop moment, all right, right there. It's like, wow. It's very dramatic. And here's the thing I want you to know. This moment for Luke is critical. Luke intentionally puts this account first in the Galilee narrative. Every commentator says this is like a programmatic text. Do you know what that means? Programmatic. It means this is the lens that Luke sets in front of everything that Jesus is about to do because Luke knows if you don't understand this moment, you will not understand anything about his ministry, what he teaches, what he does, who he interacts with. Luke says you have to see this and understand it in order to understand Christ. All of the major themes about the gospel of Christ are hiding in this moment. And so Luke starts here. 
The other gospel writers start in other places. John, he starts the Galilee ministry with Jesus going to Cana to turn water into wine. Mark starts with Jesus calling disciples. But Luke says, I'm going to start with Jesus preaching a sermon in his hometown that's so intense that when he's done preaching, people want to kill him. What does it mean? There are two critical things about the gospel that the reader needs to grasp in order to understand who Jesus is. Two critical themes that I'm going to share with you this morning. And here's what I'm going to say to you. These are tough. These are intense. These are deep. We have to get, in fact, it was as the audience started to get these that all the problems began for Jesus. Two themes that are happening in this moment. I'm going to put them on the screen so you can write them down. Theme number one is the powerful release of the gospel. And theme number two is what I'm going to call the startling reversal of the gospel. The power to release of the gospel and the startling reversal of the gospel. The first one, the powerful release, is telling us something about the initial impact of the gospel. Jesus is wanting people to realize, don't you see that when the gospel is preached and heard and when, and when people hear it in faith, something happens. They get released from bondage. It's a hint about our spiritual condition before Jesus gets involved. We're in bondage somehow. And theme number two is about the ultimate impact of the gospel. There's this startling reversal that happens where outsiders or people who assume that they're outsiders discover to their great joy that they are actually insiders in God's kingdom. And insiders or people who assume that they're insiders might come to the startling discovery that they're actually outsiders. And Jesus says, you you have to get both. Now, where am I getting this? Well, I'll show you. Look now with me. Let's look more closely at the actual passage that Jesus reads. I'll have you look at it in your Bible. Verses 18 and 19 are a quote, and I've got it on the screen so you can see it there. Um, Many of you know, if if you have a study Bible, that this quote that Jesus reads from Isaiah comes from Isaiah chapter 61, and that's mostly true, except that there are a couple of interesting changes and distinctions that Jesus makes here, and I want to show them to you for just a minute. So the first thing that I want you to realize is that the passage that Jesus quotes, it ends really abruptly. He leaves out a phrase that Isaiah includes. Jesus intentionally drops that phrase. So the very last phrase that Jesus says, he says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the year of the Lord's favor is code for what the Hebrews understood as the year of Jubilee, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Isaiah adds one more phrase there. Isaiah says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. 
of our God. So Isaiah talks about favor and vengeance, but Jesus drops the vengeance part. And at least at this point in his ministry, only wants to emphasize the favor. But then Jesus adds a phrase, the phrase right before that, if you look at it in your Bible, do you see that phrase, to set at liberty those who are oppressed? That phrase is not in Isaiah 61. It comes from Isaiah 58. So what Jesus has done is he's added another sentence in this quote that has the word liberty in it. Because right before, you'll notice Jesus has said, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then one phrase later, he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the cumulative effect is that Jesus de-emphasizes vengeance and judgment, and he brings emphasis to the idea of liberty, of being released. The word release means to be set free from bondage or to have a debt forgiven. It means to have shackles fall off. Jesus is saying, don't you realize, I'm here, I'm God's anointed Messiah, I've come to preach good news, and what is the heart of the good news? Here is the heart of the good news. The heart of the good news is that I've come to release people from bondage. And it becomes a metaphor that Jesus, this is the metaphor I want you to understand about salvation. Salvation is about being set free from bondage. Amazing. People who are oppressed, people who are captives, they need to be liberated. They needed to be released. In the year of Jubilee that Jesus talks about, the whole idea of Jubilee was the idea of, of liberating people. It was, it's, it's recorded in the book of Leviticus, and the command from God was that every 50 years, the people of Israel were supposed to have a year of jubilee where they set people free. And you know what ha would happen in the year of jubilee? In the year of jubilee, if you were in debt, all of your debts would be forgiven. Isn't that interesting? So if you were smart, you'd incur all your debts in year 49. All right, year 50, woo, we're here, right? All your debts would be forgiven. And not only that, if you had managed your debts by selling yourself into slavery, all slaves would be set free in the year of Jubilee. Amazing. And it had to do with the fact that the people of Israel had come out of slavery. God had released them from bondage. And fundamental to their identity was this idea that our salvation means we are free. We're no longer slaves. And then Jesus says, this is the heartbeat of my ministry. Can I tell you why this matters, River West? If a Christian doesn't think about their salvation like that, they'll never have any joy. All the joy of Christianity is tied up in this idea. If, if a person thinks that when they became a Christian, they just added some religion to their life. I became religious. It was the best decision I've ever made, right? There's no joy there. There's no joy in getting religious. There's no joy in just joining a nice community of people who are relatively decent. Do you know where the joy comes? The joy comes when you realize, God set me free from bondage. Jesus said, I didn't come to add religion to your life. I came to free you from what? 
what are we in bondage to? The Bible is so clear. We're in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to evil. Do you know that in the scriptures, when you study the scriptures, they talk about sin in such an interesting way. Sin is not just something you do. It's not an activity in your life. I mean, you, you participate in it. But sin is not fundamentally things you do. Do you know what sin is? Sin in the Bible is a power that holds people captive. That's what it is. It's like a spiritual force that enslaves people. The Apostle Paul, in a famous passage in Romans 7, which I'll put on the screen. You can study it later. It's breathtaking. He talks about sin in these terms. And this is the Apostle Paul. This is like the most spiritual person. And he described this experience of being enslaved. He said, Romans 7, verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says... This is what I've discovered in my life. Even even though I want to do certain things, I want to do the right thing I have found in my life that I can never quite do it because there's a power in my life that has overcome me and I am a slave. I'm held captive by it. And earlier Paul had said, every person on the planet is in slavery to this power. Romans 6, 21, all are slaves to sin. Amazing. Do you know how much explanatory power is in this? This explains so much. Like, why is it that even though there are things that I really want to do and there are things that I want to stop doing, for some reason I just feel like sometimes I can't. It's as if I don't have the power to do the thing that's actually best for me. I don't. That's... That's what salvation means. Salvation means that the human race is caught in a power system that's holding them in bondage. So powerful. C.S. Lewis, in the end of his book, The Abolition of Man, he ends the book by compiling a list of all of these phrases from all of the world religions, all the world texts. So he includes... Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Christianity and Judaism and all these different systems of thought and philosophies. And what his point is to show that if you were to study all the, all the sacred texts of all the major worldviews and philosophies, one of the things you would discover is that they share in common this universal sense of right and wrong. Across the board, every faith system, every culture, every people group, every faith system knows there are just certain things that you don't do and certain things you should do. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't cheat. You shouldn't kill, right? The golden rule. You should, and you should be generous and kind and you should be sacrificial. And what Lewis observes is if you were to actually study all those texts, you realize everyone agrees on what we should do and everyone agrees on what we shouldn't do. And what's more, we all understand that Most of the problems in our world are the result of people 
doing what they know they shouldn't do. I mean, that's why the world is so messed up. And C.S. Lewis says, well, here's my question. If we all know what's right and we all know what's wrong, why do we continually fail to do the right and we always do the wrong? And Jesus says, I'll tell you the answer. Because the world's in bondage. The world needs to be set free. That's why I've come. Can I suggest something to you? Every time that you think about your salvation, pause and go, well, now wait a minute, God. You released me from bondage. And your joy will erupt. Your joy will erupt. Amen? Amen? Are you with me? I'm the one who's sick up here, all right? Are you with me? Okay. Amen? You have been freed from bondage. And Jesus said, that is why I have come. Now, what's amazing, and we're going to study this next week, is immediately Jesus is going to begin freeing people from bondage. He's going to rebuke illness and evil as if it is a power source that's got people held down. When you study Luke and you see people, Jesus healing people, Luke presents it as if people need to be freed from bondage. That's because they do. And we're going to see the power of Christ speaking with authority and lifting people out of their shackles so that they can walk free. It's amazing. And hallelujah, it happened to you if you love Jesus. Hallelujah. So what's amazing is that so far, things are actually going pretty well for Jesus. You know, if, when you look at your Bible at verse 22, at this point in the sermon, people are loving it. They're so fired up, okay? Do you see it there? It says, verse 22, all the people spoke well of him and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They were like, this is amazing. We love this. This is the greatest thing we've ever heard. And what's about to happen is that in about five minutes, Jesus, he's going to say a few more things. And in five minutes, it's going to go from admiration to rage. <laughs> rage. Here's what happens. We look at it. They spoke well of him, verse 22. They marveled. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? They're like, this, this is our kid. This is the hometown kid. This is so great. But Jesus perceived that something was not right. So he said to them, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's realizing that they are beginning to assume that because they've got the inside connections with Messiah, the son of the living God, that they're going to be the beneficiaries of all of these blessings. They're like, all that amazing stuff that you're doing in Capernaum, do it here first. I mean, we got the relationship, right? We're insider. It's like the backstage pass moment. And they're like, we should, be, we should get the first fruits of all of this great stuff, right, Jesus? And so Jesus begins to perceive th this admiration is really shallow. They don't understand what I'm really here to do. They've turned this into what kind of benefits can we get from 
the Christ. And so what does Jesus do? He decides, I've got to poke the bear. I have to provoke a little bit. And so he keeps preaching. And he said, verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down over the cliff. That got intense fast. Yesterday, I was with a group of guys in my small group, and I said, you know what, guys? I'm really thankful there are no cliffs near our church, <laughs> okay? Because I've said some intense stuff. I mean, you could throw me out in traffic. That, you could do that, but right? And this is intense. And let me, let me pause and say one thing for just a minute. Think about this. Rejection by people when it comes to your Christian faith is not always a sign of failure. Just think about that for a minute. Rejection does not always mean that something is wrong. Because the reality is that the truth about Christ is clear and focused and pointed, and sometimes people don't want to hear it. And the mistake that sometimes we make is if we, if we find that there are elements of the gospel that cause people to reject the gospel, the mistake would be to shave off those truths to try to make it easier for more people to know Christ. But the problem is Jesus doesn't model that. Sometimes the truth of the gospel is hard to hear and it's abrasive. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but over the years there have been moments right in this room where when a sermon gets to a point where it's really intense and it's really focused, there have been some times where people stand up and leave. Have you ever noticed that? And it can feel sort of awkward, all right? And I've had people come up after the service and go, does that bother you? Like, did that make you uncomfortable? And my, my answer is, well, at least they didn't try to murder me. So, you know, it's, it could be worse, right? The, the reality is, sometimes if you're going to speak the truth of Christ, it comes through as truth, and that can be hard for the human heart. And that's what happens in this moment. The people don't like what they hear, but we, but we, we have a... We have a cultural distance, so we have a hard time figuring out what's actually going on in this text, all right? So let me, let me point out what's happening here. I'm going to summarize it for you in one statement. It's the startling reversal of the gospel, point, point number two. Remember that? Here's what Jesus does. He draws on these two illustrations from the Old Testament, the first illustration is about Elijah. 
during a time of famine. And what, what Jesus says is he says, Elijah could have gone to many widows in Jerusalem, in Israel, a part of the nation of Israel. He could have gone to those widows, but he didn't. He passed over Israel and he went outside to the Gentiles, which is just basically a word for outsiders. And he went to a, a widow from Zarephath who was an outsider. And she was the one who was delivered and healed and received blessings. And then there was a prophet, Elijah, and he, he could have healed any number of lepers who were a part of the nation of Israel, but he didn't. He passed over and he went to Naaman, who was a Syrian, who was a Gentile, who was an outsider. And what happens in that moment is that the people are hearing this and they're going, What are you implying, Jesus? Wait a minute. In these illustrations, are we the people that are getting passed over? Like, what are you saying, Jesus? And here's what Jesus is implying. He's saying there is this element of the gospel that creates this, un this startling reversal where people who are outsiders, and often they know it, and perhaps often they think, there's no way God's grace could ever reach me. I'm too far gone. They come to the startling and joyful realization. I am being saved. I'm being included in the kingdom of God. Amazing. And people who might be tempted to assume that they're insiders, but in actuality, their hearts are hardened towards God and his purposes. They could come to the startling realization. I'm an outsider. And it becomes this major theme in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was going to outsiders over and over and over again. In ancient Israel, people who were sinners were excluded because of their sin. They weren't allowed to be a part of the fellowship of the people of God. But in the ministry of Jesus, that was the first place he would go, into their homes, at their dinner table, and they would be forgiven and they would experience the power of God's grace. And not only that, Jesus would invite them into the community. And many of them became members of the community of the disciples themselves. Ultimate outsiders becoming insiders. Amazing. People who were, had leprosy or, or blindness, the, 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 the people of Israel understood that to be about uncleanness. They were excluded because they were unclean but in the ministry of Jesus Jesus went right into the middle of it he got up close and personal he touched lepers and he healed them and cleansed them and they became insiders and they became members of the people of God and you see it over and over and over the first shall be last the last shall be first the prideful will become humble the humble will become proud amazing Jesus says this is why I've come I've come to turn outsiders into insiders and you know what? It happened to you. And I know you know it. I seriously doubt that anyone here who has received the grace of Jesus is, is arrogant about that or thinks that you deserve that. Every person I know who's received grace realizes, I didn't deserve this. I was a wretched sinner and God saved me. Amazing. But, but, you know one thing we can sometimes do? Sometimes, if we're being honest, in our minds, there are certain people that we can write off as outsiders. We can give up on people 
for any number of reasons. We can think that person's too far gone. There's no way. Or maybe we even think that person doesn't even really belong. And, and we're tempted to assume they go into a class of people that I would never pursue, I would never invite, I would never reach out to. I gave up on a kid once when I was a young man in ministry. I wrote him off. And I vowed that I would never do it again after I saw what God did in his life. His name was Adrian. And I'll be honest with you, Adrian, he was 16. I was new in the ministry. I met Adrian. He was a bully. And he was a punk. And to be honest with you, I didn't actually really like him that much. And so I wrote him off. I remember one time he came on a weekend retreat and, and he, I remember walking back to the cabin one night and when I walked in the room, Adrian had a little freshman kid who was scared to death. He had this kid by the shirt and he had lifted him up the wall of the cabin and he had pulled back his fist and he was about ready to just slug this kid in the face. And I walked in the room, and I, and, and I immediately intervened. I'm, I'm not like a big guy, you know, but I was like, I, was like, I, I got big. I was like, Adrian, I, I, you know, I, I like diffused the situation. I might have said some things I regret to this day. And then he walked out of there, and I didn't see him again for a couple of months. And a couple of months later, he called me. And he said, I want to come on the trip that you're doing to Mexico. I was taking a group of kids to Mexico to serve and build houses, and Adrian said, I want to go on that trip. And I hung up the phone with Adrian. I was sitting in the church office with the senior pastor's wife. Her name was Sherry. She was a saint. And I turned to Sherry, and I was like, there is no way I'm letting Adrian go to Mexico. And you know what she said to me? She said to me what my mother says to me. She said, Adam Robert McMurray. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's what my mom used to say. Adam Robert McMurray. How'd you know my middle name? Adam, and then she, the next thing she said was, who do we serve? Who do we serve? I was like, oh, you're right. So I let Adrian come to Mexico, and you know what happened? God set someone free from bondage. And God took an outsider and turned him into an insider. I remember the moment because... We had been serving and building houses, and it was physical, and it was exhausting, and then we were doing VBS, and we were sharing the gospel with children, and I remember walking through, and I saw in this moment, I saw Adrian sitting on the ground, and all these kids from the village had come over, and they sat down in his lap, and he started crying. And I looked into the face of someone who was being set free from bondage. Amen. We got home from the trip. Adrian showed up on our front doorstep. With, he came to his leaders, and he handed us a paper bag, and the bag had a gun in it and a scale for dealing marijuana. And he said, I won't be needing these anymore. I was like, this is the first in my ministry. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> okay. Can I ask you a question? Have you written off anyone in your life? Is there anyone you've given up on? 
can I encourage you? That might be the precise person that God wants you in faith to seek out and invite and share your faith. Next Sunday, when you come back, we're going to see how powerful and how compelling Jesus is. Why wait until Easter to invite a friend? (laughs) Come back next Sunday to hear more. Can I pray with you? Will you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful as we go to the table. We're thankful for the good news about Jesus. We're thankful for this account that Luke records, all that it teaches us, Lord, about the power of the gospel to release people from bondage, about the surprising work of the gospel that turns outsiders into insiders. And we want to pray as a church family that you would increase our faith, God, that we would seek you, that we would start to take you at your word, and that we would become your representatives in this world for the sake of Jesus, who's our Savior and our Lord. It's in his name we pray, everyone said.